Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests will discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. And Tom, we should remind our listeners that our views are not necessarily those of the show, and they don't necessarily represent those of the Catholic Medical Association. Today, our guest will be Dr. Paul Carson, an infectious disease specialist and public health specialist to talk about whether or not Catholics have a duty to vaccinate themselves and their children. But first, let's look at a couple of news items and thinking about vaccines and things of similar controversy. I think you've got some vaccine topics to go over. One I'd like to put forth is from my own area of expertise, and that is the world of dermatology. The only vaccine that had been available for shingles, otherwise known as herpes zoster, which is when chicken pox from childhood comes to give you payback as an adult, was derived from cells of aborted babies. But now there is a new alternative as of early in 2018, and that vaccine is called Shingrix. Uh, it's not made from any uh, fetal cells, and it's actually a far better vaccine than the original vaccine that's been out there since 2006 called Zostavax. And Tom, that's S-H-I-N-G-R-I-X, rather unusual looking word. Shingrix. Well, I think in the world of medicine, when they're naming vaccines, naming medicines, they're trying to come up with words that are not found in any language which is really, really hard because you can end up offending somebody in another language <laughs> without even trying to. It's like when I think Chevy was trying to sell the Nova car in Spanish-speaking countries, Nova means doesn't go. I mean, a car that doesn't go is just, you know, another part of a rust farm. Well, the cool thing about this vaccine is it's what we call recombinant, right? It's not a, it's not a live virus that you inject with someone. And as you pointed out, no aborted fetal cells were used in its making. It came out in the early early this year, 2018, and it's said to be 90% effective at preventing shingles. Not, not nearly, uh, excuse me, much, much better than the old vaccine, right? Right, which was at about 50% efficacy or effectiveness. Uh, and the way they do this is vaccines have something in them called an adjuvant. An adjuvant is something that stimulates your immune system to react much more strongly than it would if there was nothing there. It's like if your wife is talking to you and poking you in the shoulder at the same time, that poke in the shoulder is kind of like an adjuvant, getting your attention even more than you would otherwise. <laughs> Chris is going to refrain from commenting. Very good. I'm sure I'll hear from this later. But so who <laughs> should be thinking to themselves, selves? I should get this vaccine. Virtually anybody 50 years and older, whereas with the old vaccine, it was 60 years old and older. And almost anybody can get it. Now, uh, you may not want to do it if you have a chronic uh, kidney failure, a bad case of diabetes, your doctor will know, perhaps rheumatoid arthritis, perhaps chronic pulmonary disease. Actually... That, that was completely wrong. All those people, you can get it too. <laughs> Virtually anybody can, even if you are receiving at the same time other vaccines such as influenza, pneumococcus, even if you are immunosuppressed, that is your immune system uh, due to a disease or medication is suppressed. So just about anybody can get it, even people who have had shingles in the past, because you can get shingles more than once, so Tom, sadly. We should probably back up a little just to be clear. You get chicken pox, presumably as a child, although now that's not nearly as common because so many children are vaccinated against chicken pox. Right. And that virus lives in you forever. Yeah. And it can become reactivated and form this disease. And this disease occurs usually in one dermatome. That is a region of the body supplied by one cranial or spinal nerve. So you only get on one side in a band, usually several inches wide. And this isn't a nuisance disease. This can be debilitating. Uh, yes. Uh, the most common part of the body where this can reoccur is on the, the top of the face. So involving the top of the scalp and surrounding the eye right to the midline. It stops at the midline. And incredibly painful because where does the, the virus live? It lives in nerves. So it's reactivated in nerves. And you can get a, a horrible a permanent side effect called post-herpetic neuralgia, which is medicalese for 
really horrible nerve pain where you want to tear that part of your body off. So, Tom, someone gets shingles, goes through life for whatever reason, excuse me, gets chickenpox, mm-hmm. goes through life for whatever reason, has a, a reactivation of that virus in the form of shingles. Now, with so many children being vaccinated against chickenpox, does that mean we'll see the disappearance of shingles over time? They're actually expecting it to be worse. Mm because of the vaccine not providing much protection from the body's immune system Ah. as intensely as if you got the native disease. Well, interesting, because it wasn't that long ago that mothers would talk about my one child got chicken pox, so I put all of my other kids in bed with them. We did that. So so they would get chicken pox. And now, you know, we seem to want to protect the kids from getting the chicken pox, so we vaccinate them. But interesting, that could have negative implications for shingles later on. Uh, It definitely can. And one of three people at some time in their lives will have shingles. So it's it's pretty darn common. The older you are, when just as with chickenpox, the older you are when you get chickenpox, the more likely you can have severe uh, side effects like in the brain or the lungs. Same thing with shingles. The older you are when you get it, usually the worse it is for you. And I think it's important to reiterate, this is not just a, a nuisance disease like maybe childhood chickenpox. This can be absolutely debilitating. And as you point out, in a, in a minority of people who get shingles, they may suffer the rest of their lives with pain and other kinds of problems. Oh, I have patients like this. And they have been through the mill with uh, pain specialists after, you know, running through what I or other dermatologists can do. And there's nothing. I mean, in, injections in the back, uh, into the spinal fluid, it Sometimes nothing helps. So what is the price you have to pay for this vaccine versus the other one? You do have more side effects. Yeah, we should probably talk about that in transparency and fairness, shouldn't we? Yes. Well, and patients will have a sore arm. In fact, it will probably be a two to three inch red mark on the shoulder where you get the shot. That is not unusual. And usually you have side effects for two to three days. And many times you have flu-like symptoms. You feel like you are sick. And in Mm. fact... One in six people feel so sick they can't do their normal activities for a short period of time. But we should point out, in fairness, that's nothing compared to the pain and suffering someone who gets shingles might experience. Might, might have for a lifetime. So, And most of the symptoms can be handled with things like ibuprofen or acetaminophen, pain medicines that you can buy over the counter. Outstanding. Well, it's pretty exciting that it's just getting better, and this offers people maybe the chance to avoid this terrible condition of uh, shingles. And it's a a, a morally good vaccine. Yeah, no problems. It only gets better. (laughs) So uh, there's another study that I was going to point out having to do with vaccines, and of all things, the opioid crisis. Now, we've been talking with a lot of people, and the news is, is filled with information about our national sort of pandemic of opioid addiction and deaths related to opioid overdose. And this article comes from the American College of Neuropsychopharmacology, which I didn't know existed. You don't belong? No, (laughs) I'm not a member as an OBGYN. And it's looking at a study that was done, uh, the Scripps Research Institute, looking at what's called monoclonal antibodies made against opiates, such that you could be vaccinated so that if you overdosed on opioid drugs, the opioids wouldn't have an effect. Oh, because the antibodies would glom onto them and... And render uh, them sort of useless. Right, because the opioids couldn't get to the parts of the brain where they have their action of depressing your breathing. Yeah, they looked at some animal studies. I mean, this is really very early. They're looking at mice studies. And so mice that were given the opioids or the narcotics, like the very deadly fentanyl, um, without the antibodies, they had the usual reaction Mm -hmm. to narcotics. But the animals that were given the monoclonal antibodies behaved as though they had never received the narcotics. Wow. Yeah, so it's really pretty fascinating. Again, it's it's very early, but this could uh, this could be used for, for uh, first responders who often accidentally overdose on narcotics when they show up at a scene and they inhale things. It could be used for drug addicts to help them. I mean, it's got some really uh, far-reaching um, applications. There's even talk now outside of this study about giving prescriptions for naloxone when we give prescriptions for narcotics because it's become such a problem that people are accidentally overdosing on narcotics and dying. 
So th- this is a national problem. It is not going away. No, it's a big problem. Yeah, and, it, the, and the CMA actually has some activity against it, and I hope to interview the gal who's a psychiatrist at the forefront of that soon. Now, but, Tom, in your practice, Tom, do you prescribe a lot of narcotics for surgery patients? Uh, uh, that has probably gone down about 90 95% in the last couple of years as the studies have demonstrated that alternating Tylenol or acetaminophen and ibuprofen every three hours is just as effective as narcotics for post-operative pain. I I know what I'm seeing in my surgery patients, uh, and I think a lot of surgeons are seeing, is that patients become rather upset with us and disgruntled that we seem to be so chintzy on giving out the narcotics, when in reality, we're trying to stem this this huge problem. Right. Uh, And most of my patients don't like the way narcotics makes them feel anyway. So so listeners, uh, grant your surgeons some grace (laughs) if they appear to be uh, sort of heavy or tight-handed, I should say, with the narcotics. It's because of this national pandemic. And finally, before our break, um, I'm going to pose a medical trivia question having to do with vaccines. Tom, I'll bet our listeners would be super shocked to realize that you used to be part of the super secret research team. Uh, I spent two years in a previous life working in biological warfare uh, research at Fort Detrick, Maryland at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Disease, which is now behind large bulwarks that no normal human being may drive behind. (laughs) I was there shortly after Desert Storm. And our whole purpose there was developing vaccines against potential biologic weapons. So my question to you stems from that. Several months after Desert Storm, we had to go around the country to various bases that had special forces, Navy SEALs, uh, Delta Force, and we had to draw blood and uh, go through questionnaires with these soldiers to see how effective these two vaccines were that they received immediately before Desert Shield and Desert Storm and see what the side effects were from it. So my question is simply this, what were those two new vaccines that were given to as many soldiers as possible before going over to Iraq, uh, but the full three uh, dose series of each vaccine was mainly received by the special forces, those on the front line. So that's my question, and I, I myself have received those series also. What were those two diseases that, if they'd been aerosolized, would have been deadly? Be back after the break with Dr. Paul Carson. We're back with our guest interviewee, Dr. Paul Carson, an infectious disease specialist who is a professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of North Dakota Medical School and in the Department of Public Health at North Dakota State University. And he is celebrating with us our 50th interview, our 50th episode on Dr. Doctor. And this is his second time here. Paul, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you for having me. He is going to talk about whether or not Catholics have a duty to vaccinate themselves and their children and has written the definitive article on this called Catholic Social Teaching and the Duty to Vaccinate, published last year or 2017, I should say, in the American Journal of Bioethics. So, Paul, when we were growing up, uh, unless I just really misremember, immunizations were just something that we all did. I mean, as far as I know, it was it was really rare for anyone to question the necessity of vaccination, at least in my little bitty neighborhood in Memphis, Tennessee. We were surrounded by polio stories. My mother still will remind me of not being allowed to go to the movies or public pools when she was growing up because of polio. But things have changed a bit. Can you sort of rewind the tape for us and Take us back 50 or even 100 years ago. What was life like pre-vaccine? Sure. Well, your uh, mom and grandma remember well, and uh, unfortunately a lot of that collective wisdom is kind of fading from us as that generation ages and uh, passes on. But if you look back, for example, to the 1950s, uh, before the polio vaccine came around, for example, um, there were up to 40 to 60,000 cases of uh, polio that were occurring each year in the United States. People were terrified of this and, as you said, wouldn't send their kids out to the swimming pool, kept them away from the movie theaters and going out into various communal activities. And when that vaccine first came out, people flocked to get their children immunized. They were uh, pressuring to be first in line, even before a lot of uh, uh, good safety data was uh, really well established. You know, fast forward here now, polio has been um, declared eradicated from the Western Hemisphere for almost two decades, and we're on the cusp of it being eradicated from the world. 
Um, look at another very common disease like measles. Uh, measles would um, cause illness in about a half to three-quarters of a million children each year in the United States. About two out of a thousand of those would die, about one out of a thousand would be left with some form of permanent brain damage, and about one out of five would be hospitalized. And is that regular um, measles, not the German measles, rubella? That's correct. That's, wow. that's regular measles. Um, German measles was really more of a problem for pregnant women yes. um, and, and caused a, a large number of birth defects every year. Um, one that, you know, I remember in medical training, you, you know, you, you, you're probably a little bit younger than me, but I, I remember well when I was in medical school and we rotated on pediatrics, you'd regularly see a kid in the hospital with uh, Haemophilus influenza B meningitis. That would affect about 20,000 kids each year. Now I talk to my young pediatrician colleagues, and they've never seen it. They don't know what it looks like. They've never ran across a case. So, so these things um, were commonplace. Uh, they were devastating. And we have vaccines that when you look at m most of the vaccine-preventable diseases that we immunize against, you see 80 to 99% reductions in almost all of those diseases. Uh, and uh, the, the sort of poster child of uh, one of the greatest successes ever was the uh, eradication of smallpox from the world. And now we're, like I said, close to eradicating the second only uh, other disease that uh, human efforts have been are coming very close to eradicating, which is polio. I mean, what's interesting, it goes without saying, but it seems worth saying, particularly for some of our younger, shall we say, millennial listeners, the absence yeah. of, say, polio has nothing to do with iPhones and Facebook. <laughs> we, it has nothing right. to do with technology. It has nothing to do with better treatment modalities for disease, like we might right. talk about cancer changes. It's because right. no one gets the disease anymore. That's exactly right. And, you know, you sort of touch on another uh, kind of theme that I sometimes hear is that, you know, we're doing so well nowadays because we have sort of better health overall. We've got better nutrition, better living conditions, less crowding, et cetera. And, um, and a lot of people think that, you know, these diseases are, are gone in large part because of our just overall better health. But that's really quite wrong. Uh, we've seen uh, recurrent uh, measles epidemics in many industrialized countries, including our own, and it's got the exact same uh, mortality rate and the exact same uh, complication rates with encephalitis as it was 100 years ago. Um, I, sh I should probably qualify that. The death rates are, are better. Um, in part because we can treat the secondary bacterial infections and so on now. But it's, it's no different uh, than when it was in the 1950s, 60s, um, and early 70s before we had the vaccine and widespread use. It's but it really is interesting. Collectively, society has just sort of forgotten, it feels like, how devastating Absolutely. these conditions. Just listening to you, I remember working in my first practice uh, with an office manager that had rubella-related deafness. And it, it yeah. sounded huh. it sounded like something from an old movie, like that couldn't possibly, yeah. you know, be possible today. So, how many people yeah. would we be missing now, and how many people with uh, deformities or significant problems would we have now if there had not been those vaccines? Do you have any idea on that? Yeah, there are there are some studies that have kind of tried to take a look at this. If you sort of take it collectively, we we have about four million babies born each year. And some studies have looked at um, what would we have expected in the not-too-distant past in an unimmunized birth cohort, uh, you know, uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago compared to now. And what you can estimate is that there are about 20 million cases of disease that are prevented, about 42,000 deaths prevented, uh, and about $69 billion in direct and indirect costs. And as I kind of alluded to earlier, you take polio as an example. At its kind of peak when we were at its worst, we were seeing up to 40,000, 50,000 uh, primarily children affected by that in the worst years uh, of that epidemic right before the vaccine came about. So, you know, tragic uh, diseases that, that we don't see anymore. So, Paul, what you're pointing out is something I think of from uh, my, my love of uh, detective novels like Sherlock Holmes. Oftentimes, what people fail to notice is what didn't happen. Oh, the yeah. dog didn't bark. That was the key clue yeah. in one of his stories. Well, here, the disease didn't happen because yeah. of the vaccines. And you're right, people, people, it's like we're more guilty of sins of omission. It's just like we don't notice what didn't happen. Mm -hmm. We assume that this is normal. Well, I'd like to segue now into 
an email that I received recently from a board member. In Northeast Indiana, there's a group called Super Shots that gives out free or low-cost vaccines to those who normally couldn't afford them. And he said this in his email. Quote, people of faith are choosing not to vaccinate their children as frequently. Religious exemptions are frequently claimed, particularly from Mennonites and Amish, but increasingly so from the evangelical community and those who homeschool. Some feel that vaccines cause autism. Others that vaccines are a form of government mind control and groupthink. Conspiracy theories abound, but the bottom line is that next to clean water, immunizations are one of the most effective, life-sparing health advances of the last hundred years. And that ends the quote. And isn't it true now, and you, I think, have some data, that there are outbreaks now of diseases where we hadn't seen outbreaks in the U.S. and other developed countries because of this shift? Yeah, that's true. Your uh, friend who emailed raises, I think, a number of uh, interesting points and legitimate concerns. So because these vaccines have been so successful, the sort of deep irony here is that people are, uh, who've never seen these diseases are much less afraid of those risks that they've never seen, don't know anybody personally, um, compared to the sort of real minimal or rare side effects of vaccines to much more uh, worse imagined risks from vaccines. I, you know, I, I, I like to hope that the conspiracy theory stuff is a, a minor player here, but I think there are a lot of people that have anywhere from a sort of minor, vague concerns about risks of the vaccines to sort of full-blown, uh, you know, they don't want to go anywhere near them. And, um, and those people are choosing more and more to opt out of uh, being vaccinated. And the interesting thing is, is that a lot of times th that sort of thinking or those groups of people cluster in geographic areas, and they may cluster around um, religious groups, they may cluster uh, around states that kind of have more lax laws regarding this, and they may cluster for a variety of reasons. Um, not another interesting group that tends to cluster is kind of higher socioeconomic status in kind of college-educated, liberal-minded parents. Uh, they, they tend to uh, opt out of vaccines more for their kids. And so when you have some of these groups clustering together, that then raises uh, risk levels for pockets of uh, people that uh, are at risk for outbreaks to recur. And we've seen that happen. So we had the Disneyland outbreak of measles uh, a few years ago. Uh, we've had uh, several pockets of outbreaks of pertussis. We could kind of go on and on. Uh, my next door here in Minnesota, we had an outbreak of Haemophilus uh, influenza B meningitis that killed one child and severely sickened uh, five others. And, uh, you know, those things are preventable, unnecessary. Well. Wow. Where are some of those pockets uh, in sure. the United States? Uh, because there are, what, 18 states now that allow you to opt out of receiving a vaccination? Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we have in place. So many years ago, to kind of set this up a little bit, many years ago, public health used as a means to try and ensure a, a immunized population to protect us the best we can against outbreaks of disease, they, they instituted school immunization laws, which are really regulated at a state-by-state -state level. But all, all states have some form of requirements for immunization to enter school. Um, but also on a state-by-state -state basis, those states have the ability to allow exemptions for various reasons. All states allow uh, people to be exempt if they have a medical contraindication to the vaccine. So if you had a severe allergic reaction, for example, you can forego further immunization. But about uh, in, in all but I think three states uh, allow for a religious exemption. So there are some uh, few uh, religious groups that have specific proscriptions against uh, vaccination. But as you mentioned, uh, about 18 states now allow for what are sort of loosely called personal belief exemptions. I just sort of personally don't believe in being vaccinated. And, um, and you can be exempt from those school immunization requirements. And what are I the live worst in, states? I live in one of those states. Yeah. In North Go Dakota. Ahead. So why don't you yeah. tell our listeners where are some of these areas that they might expect outbreaks because of the high rate of non-immunization? Yeah. So there was really, really an interesting study that was just published uh, this year in a journal called uh, PLOS Medicine, and they kind of took, did a deep dive into this on, you know, what percent of uh, um, children, particularly looking at kindergartners, that were not immunized because one of these exemptions. And um, states uh, like Idaho, Utah, Oregon, my state, North Dakota, Colorado, uh, Michigan, uh, a, a number of these have um, 
these personal belief exemption uh, laws that allow uh, people to opt out. And, and when you drill down even deeper, sort of at the county level, you can find some counties where you've got up to 27% of the kindergartners not immunized. I mean, that's kind of approaching some third world country rates. So those, those areas um, are, are particularly at risk for outbreaks of disease. There are several of those counties in Idaho. There are several in the state of Washington. Um, Great. Paul, that brings us to the end of the first half of the interview. We'll be back more with the herd immunity and Catholic social teaching after a break. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor and our guest, Dr. Paul Carson, talking to us about Catholic social teaching and immunizations. And just before the break, we brought up this strange term, Paul, called herd immunity. And so maybe we can, uh, as we think about Catholic social teaching uh, and vaccination, maybe you could help us understand this unusual phrase and what it means. Sure. So... Uh, herd immunity can, I think, most simply uh, be described by the fact that we can observe when you have a certain percentage of the population that's immune against a disease, y- you can hit a threshold where the disease simply can't get a foothold in that population. It can't spread. It can't make its way. Even if you have some vulnerable persons in that population, there's just not enough of a critical mass for an outbreak to occur. And that threshold, this herd immunity threshold, if you will, depends on how contagious the disease is. So, for example, when you have something like measles, which is really contagious, you got to have up to 95% of the population immune to prevent it from spreading from one individual to another. Uh, Whereas a disease like influenza or the flu, it's maybe closer to 60 to 70%. If we could get that many people immune, it just really wouldn't spread. Um, So, vaccines confer some of their benefit, not only at the individual level, but at this community level or by inducing herd immunity. And, and that's really important for a lot of members of our, our society. So there's a number of people that can't get vaccinated because, for example, they may have suppressed immune systems or they don't respond to the vaccine or they're too young to get certain vaccines or they may have had reactions to vaccines. And so those people, these sort of vulnerable people, rely on the rest of us to protect them by uh, us being immune so that that disease just can't get a foothold in the community. So those who most need the protection cannot receive it from a vaccine, and they must receive it from the group. In other words, sometimes it does take a village. So my second question, okay, that's a great uh, tee-off for this. Okay, Catholic social teaching is comprised of four pillars called human dignity, the common good, solidarity, and subsidiarity. And in your paper, you point out that two of these are especially important in considering whether we have a duty to vaccinate. And those are the common good and solidarity. Can you define those in plain English to help our listeners understand what that means? Sure. Since I'm, I'm not a, a theologian, I, I only kind of work in the plain <laughs> English. So, um, it's my first language. So, in, <laughs> so Catholic social teaching has these two pillars that you mentioned that are very closely connected with one another and that I think are especially important or pertain to our conversation today. So simply kind of the common good uh, aims that we try to achieve the greatest good for all persons. And now that's not to be confused with utilitarian ideas, which is the greatest good for the greatest number. It's it's we aim for the good of everyone. Good point. And yeah, and so solidarity is closely tied with that. It, it, it recognizes that we live in relationship with others and that we are interdependent on one another. And kind of uh, actually a friend of mine who helped me write that paper, who is a theologian, kind of said, you know, simply said, it's we're in this together. Mm-hmm. We're, we're in it together. And um, although our Catholic faith places enormous importance on the individual's dignity and the individual's rights, it recognizes that we have obligations to one another. Um, and when, and when the common good can be in- achieved at the from I mean, by the individual contributing uh, his or her part, that it's not overly burdensome, it's not intrinsically evil, it's not uh, disproportionate, um, then we have a duty or an obligation to try and seek that other's good and do our part. Is there a duty to vaccinate based on you and your theologian friends? work in looking at Catholic teaching and the medical aspects of it? 
Yeah, I I believe there is. Um, So when you look at these concepts, uh, I I think they directly relate to that idea of herd immunity. So the best chance for all persons to benefit from vaccination relies on all of us uh, who can to be immunized. And uh, vaccination in and of, of itself is not intrinsically immoral. And I think we can make a very strong public health case, medical case, that they are not disproportionately putting that individual at risk, that the risks of these are very, very small, and um, and us bearing that individual risk, not only for our own benefit and our family's benefit, for, but for the benefit of the community, um, is is not a disproportionate ask of us to try and help those who are most vulnerable around us. So in other words, when I receive a vaccination, I am doing something concretely to demonstrate a so-called love for humanity or love for other human persons. Is that right? Uh, that, that is right. And there was an essayist that wrote on this, and I just sort of loved what she said, that um, Eula uh, Bliss is her name, and, and she wrote a book called On Immunity. And she said, you know, it's literally through our bodies that we affect this good for others. And, uh, you know, that, that also has some sort of, you know, literary allusions, if you will, to the body of Christ and uh, our brother's keeper and caring for one another. And I, I think it should, that, that idea should resonate pretty strongly with all Christians and people who have kind of goodwill about this. You know, in a very concrete way on a show, a couple of shows ago, Tom and I um, looked at a CDC article at flu deaths in the 2017-2018 season. And, and yeah. just in our great state of Indiana, there were several hundred hundred senior citizens who died of flu complications. Yeah. And an important part of that study was, for the most part, most of those grandparents were probably infected by an, a non-immunized grandchild. That's an Absolutely. example of, this is solidarity yeah. gone wrong. Yes. Uh, if those children had been vaccinated, perhaps their grandparents would not have become infected. That's a great example that I like to use when I'm talking to uh, especially younger <laughs> families who, who say, you know, we're, we don't get that sick. And when we have had the flu, it hasn't been that bad. And I say, do it for grandma and grandpa. They don't respond to the vaccine. Do They're not going to get as good a response. Do it for them. Yeah, I'm seeing a bumper sticker that says, I'm seeing a bumper sticker that says, vaccinate, it's not about you. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> you know, it is about you too, but yes, it's about uh, it's about uh, those around us as well. And, you know, it's not just grandma and grandpa, it's also that little baby. You know, the, right. pe- the people who die of influenza are the extremes of age. And so I, I, I had one of my friends at church who was, uh, she's about uh, 68, and she says, I don't want to get that vaccine. I said, you're visiting your grandchildren this weekend. One mm. of them's a baby. Do you care about that baby? That's a great um, point. Ooh. And, uh, Catholic guilt has its bit. purpose, yes. <laughs> yes so, right. so in other words, you're really teaching us that vaccination really does more good for others than for ourselves. Tom, that sounds faintly Christian in its approach. Oh, no, not that. <laughs> so, so, so good public health can actually be an incarnation of a Christian principle. Uh, it, which, in fact, this pope has talked about often about going out to the peripheries. Well, vaccination is really going out to the healthcare peripheries, those who are most vulnerable. And I, I should think that this concept would resonate with those people, especially many religious people who are rejecting immunization for perhaps some misinformed reasons. Right, right. I, I certainly, I certainly agree with that. Um, you know, I don't know if you want to, to get into it, but I think some of our, particular Catholic listeners, some of our other Christian listeners may have some concerns. Uh, I mean, there are those sort of vague safety concerns, necessity concerns, and I assure you these these diseases are knocking at the door. They're playing right away, you know, waiting to get back into vulnerable populations. They are not gone from the world. Uh, we've seen that. But I think some, some of the listeners might have some of the concerns about, for example, some of the vaccines derived from aborted fuel cells. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if you want to you know, go there and talk about well, that. But, we've done that in um, a previous show, but the, the bottom line is, uh, from the Vatican, is that if there is nothing else that will uh, protect you against a known danger, and it was derived from aborted fetal cells, that remote material cooperation should not prevent you from receiving it. That's right. The, the Pontifical Academy for Life tried to answer this for the faithful in 2005. They did, did put out a um, definitive statement on this, uh, elucidating what you just said, and that the parent or the person uh, who is trying to immunize their child, for example, is so far removed from that original act of those very small handful of vaccines. It's not all vaccines by any means. It's just a small number. 
um, they're, they're so far removed from that, and the proportionate good that comes from that um, puts the burden on receiving that vaccine. Paul, I know that you uh, have an ambivalence about bringing up myths, but the reason I want to bring up the three that yeah. you would most like to uh, abolish is because many of our listeners may agree with you, but they will be you know, asked by their friends who don't want to receive vaccines, well, what about this? What about this? So you sure. s- told me that... Uh, if there were three myths regarding vaccinations that you could abolish with the wave of your hand or your your stethoscope or or whatever, what would they be? Yeah, uh, you know, I asked a couple of people I work with in my immunization center, and we all, you know, there's so many of these that we we have our three favorites, and I got several different answers. But I, <laughs> everybody agreed on number one is, is the risks of autism or other neurologic disease from vaccines, especially what was kind of first started with the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. I mean, that, that is just sort of a stunning uh, um, bit of misinformation that has just propagated since its uh, origin in 1998. And, and what people don't realize is that came from uh, a British researcher, Andrew Wakefield, who published a study in, in a reputable journal, The Lancet, on 12 kids. So this is a tiny study, 12 kids, that um, he made an association between that vaccine and uh, some gut problems that he thought led to actually autism. Well, it turns out um, the guy was on the take from a a, a trial lawyer group. He was uh, developing his own alternative vaccine, which he stood to profit by. He didn't disclose any of this. Um, He ended up, uh, an investigative reporter looked into his uh, work and found that he had uh, falsified information, had a bunch of fraudulent data. Eventually, his paper was retracted from the journal. He lost his medical license in the U.K., and he moved to the United States where he has a little cottage business playing into uh, speeches wow. about, you know, conspiracy theories. We have about um, two minutes on, left, Paul. What's yeah, the so second reason? About, there, the, the huge amount of data dispelling that. Huge. Yes. So uh, it's just not true. Uh, the other ones is that, you know, they're no longer necessary because of good health, better nutrition. You know, I, I'm green, healthy, you know, yada, yes. yada. It's just not true. I mean, you, these diseases are no respecters of that. And then there's a, a concerns about that, you know, these young infants, we're, we're giving more and more vaccines, that we're giving them too many too soon, and somehow our, you know, immunization schedule overloads their immune system. Absolutely not true. Our, our babies are actually quite adept at uh, handling thousands of antigens on a daily basis, uh, these proteins and things that are thrown at their immune system, and the vaccines are a drop in that bucket. And Paul, in the last minute, What's a trustworthy website or websites you would point us to regarding vaccines? Yeah, there's a few I really like. Um, so the Centers for Disease Control is always really good. Uh, they um, they have a specific uh, vaccine uh, section on their website for uh, um, lay people, you know, not uh, parents and so on. So the CDC's website, uh, the Children's Hospital of uh, Philadelphia. Is really very good. Um, they have uh, a vaccine information center uh, on their website, and Paul Offit is the one who started that. It's uh, uh, really excellent. Um, and then immunize.org uh, is the Immunization Action Coalition is another really excellent source of uh, information for, for people on all aspects of vaccines. Paul, this has been tremendously helpful, practical, and fascinating. Thanks for being back with us on Dr. Doctor. Very glad to be with you. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. And I know our listeners are breathless with anticipation to get the answer to this episode's trivia question. As we talked about earlier, Tom, you used to be a special agent and a Navy SEAL and a lot of other things. (laughs) Not true. Uh, working research related to with vaccines. Navy SEALs. That, yes. That's right. And so the question is, go ahead, take it away. Oh, the question is, what were the two new biologic warfare-related vaccines given during Desert Shield and Desert Storm that we were researching back then? And in fact, one of these diseases made the news uh, in uh, 2000 uh, and 2000, actually in 2001 after the Twin Towers were uh, struck down. Is that some unusual white powder on the envelope in front of you? That's what they were concerned about. And that was uh, anthrax is one of the vaccines, and the other one is botulism. And uh, if these two, uh, one of them is uh, you know, a toxin from the botulinum uh, vaccine, or, um, 
bacterium. And then anthrax is another uh, bacterial disease uh, actually caused through spores. Uh, but they are uh, dangerous. They cause some painful vaccine reactions, but they do help prevent these if they were ever aerosolized. And that's the thing. The vast majority of uh, biologic warfare agents would have to be put into an aerosol and then spread over an area where there were enemy combatants or, God forbid, uh, civilians. And one of the reasons they haven't been used much is because wind is a very changeable thing. And if you aerosolize something, it could go back on you and your soldiers. So thankfully, that's why uh, these diseases have not been weaponized. And even though the United States did weaponize anthrax spores, uh, they destroyed them all unilaterally in the late 1960s under President Nixon. Mm. So at least while I was there, all we were doing was defensive research. And in fact, that's been the last uh, coming up on 50 years of our biologic warfare research. So now you know anthrax and botulism. And now we have another episode of Lineker for the Laity, the Lineker Quarterly being the Catholic Medical Association's uh, ethics journal. We have with us today Dr. Joe Marquette, who spent uh, 25 years uh, teaching students from the secondary level to doctoral students at a number of different universities. She now lives in Arizona. She's an active researcher and a regular speaker covering theology, literature, and the liberal arts. And she has written A Step Toward Ecological Conversion, Protecting the Planet by Pitching the Pill. Joe, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Hi, thank you for having me. Joe, we're so happy to have you with us. You know, personally, I enjoy a few things more than finding reasons that uh, birth control pills are bad. But, <laughs> but you and your work have done an amazing job at pointing out some things that I think just aren't necessarily on the tip of our tongue. So we really look forward to exploring some of those with you. I mean, I think, first off, most people would agree that stable relationships are better than unstable ones. Um, and then what type of evidence do we have that there's a connection between the pill and relationships? Well, that's a great question. I think a lot of people um, are concerned with the increased cohabitation society. And the pill does actually um, increase that likelihood of people deciding to cohabitate because there's no longer this fear or risk of having a child during that cohabitation time. Mm. Um, so they can just say, oh, well, we'll give it a try. We'll, we'll um, pretend to be married without having that objective commitment, and we'll see how it goes. And then if we want to, then we'll go ahead and get married. But we're going to just give it a try, still have um, normal sexual relationships as a married couple would, um, but we won't have to worry about having a child. So if it doesn't work out, we can just go our separate ways. Uh. We, the uh, the proverbial sex without consequence, right? But what right. are those consequences, like regarding divorce? On top of that, yes. And, you know, on top of that, we have um, so many cohabitators that now extended family um, are somewhat confused on how to relate because they also know, whether it's, um, you know, spoken or unspoken, that, Either, either person in that relationship can just walk away. But now we have cohabitators that are in long-term relationships and, you know, their parents, their in-laws, their cousins and all of that, they, they are now a little bit hesitant to really include that non-family member of the cohabitating couple because they're really not sure, is this really going to be long-term? Um, but the, the pill just enhances the proclivity of young people, and now even older people of cohabitating. A second thing you point out in your article is that the pill can even affect how parents look at their future children or current children. How so? Yes. Um, I don't know if some of your audience members um, know the late William May, um, but he's a pretty prolific ethicist, and, and he made the distinction between humans that make products and humans begetting other humans. So um, when we introduce the pill and, you know, that most people will take the pill because they want to avoid pregnancy. Um, but then on the flip side, people will then stop taking the pill and use IVF to make a child. <laughs> so they're, they're using 
um, synthetic hormones on either end of the spectrum to either, you know, say, no, I don't want to make this person or I do want to make this, you know, do want to um, make this person um, through sexual relations with their partner. Um, but that's quite different from what uh, William May talks about, that humans make products. We make coffee, we make telephones, we make TVs, we make those kinds of things. So humans make products outside of themselves. But um, when we're in the sexual realm of co-creating and procreating, we're begetting another human person with the same substance as what we are ourselves. So it's an interesting distinction. And um, through the use of the pill, um, people are now starting to look at their fertility as something that they can manipulate and that they can control. So it's it's no longer something that we put in the hands of our creator that we're co-creating with him, but no, we are now autonomous, or so we think, well, by using the pill. Now, Joe, here's a topic that seems just a little too weird to be true, yet I know that it is. <laughs> um, now I can tell women they shouldn't take the pill because it will change the way they smell, so to speak. Um, help, help, <laughs> help us understand this. Yeah, this is really fascinating, and I think a lot of people have heard the argument about cohabitation. They may have even heard the argument about, you know, looking at children um, as uh, differently as intended, but I, I think a lot of people really have no idea about um, matchmaking and choosing your spouse and how pheromones have something to do with that. There is uh, a gene called the MHC or major histocompatibility complex gene that is related to our immune system. And that in, in a sense also has something to do with our pheromones and how we smell. And when we are choosing a mate, unbeknownst to us, a part of our attraction to um, the opposite sex is you know this this pheromone this this natural odor that we put off and um, stronger um, relationships are between um, two different people who have different MHC genes and what's happening now is that people are taking the pill and the pill the the uh, synthetic hormones in the pill mask. Uh, our our fertility make us make women think that the, the, their bodies think that they are pregnant. So that means that now their their hormone their pheromones are uh, not what they should be, and they are seeking mates who have the same uh, MHC genes. Does that make sense? It does. It's fascinating. That that's a whole area of of uh, of exploration that I don't think most people would intuitively consider. Right. So it's really, it is really um, uh, concerning because more and more young women in high school are now getting on the pill because they're starting to believe the lie that society tells them that if they don't have sex by a certain time of their life, certainly by 18, of course, um, <laughs> that there's something wrong with them. And there are movies about, you know, how strange and odd it is for someone to be a virgin. So they're, they're buying into these lies that they have to have sex, you know, sometime between the t their 15 and 18 or so. Um, and, of course, they don't want to get pregnant by that time sure. in that, in that space of time. So, you know, and then their parents are upset or, or concerned that they may get pregnant because they know that their parents are now buying into this lie that their kids are going to have sex regardless. So then they take their children, you know, and really that's what they are at 15 years old, their children, they take them to um, the doctor to get the pill. And so now these girls are messing up with their pheromones, their MHC genes, and they are inevitably we're possibly choosing the wrong partners. Right. Yes, and as they our enter final marriage. final topic in our last couple minutes here is you also point out that women taking the pill actually adversely affect the environment. How can that be so? Oh, right. This is crazy. In fact, I was just talking to a biology teacher um, in the high school today, 
and I mentioned uh, this whole topic, and she said she had never heard of it. Um, you know, obviously there are lots and lots of my study said that or my research found that there are about 100 million women worldwide who are using oral contraception. So, you know, as, as these women are just naturally flushing their system um, and, you know, urinating and, you know, that goes into the sewer system. Now, clearly, most of those synthetic hormones are um, retracted from the sewer system, but there are traces that still go into our, uh, our bodies of water and they're affecting our wildlife. Uh, you know, so, for example, we have um, bass. Um, fish that are um, they called it's it's called an intersex phenomenon where there are female eggs actually in the testicles of these fish. That wow. doesn't make sense. Um, <laughs> no, there there are like alligators that um, have you know a shrinkage of their genitalia. We have sex development problems in turtles, and that's just to, to name a few. So for all those people who want to live green, um, I would I would absolutely say that getting off the pill is the the easiest from an objective point of view way to you know start that green living. And if that doesn't work, we can tell them that it will shrink their genitalia, just like the alligators. <laughs> so Joe, thank you for your thank you for your work and thank you for joining us uh, on Doctor Doctor. God bless you and God bless your work. Yes, and, and thank thanks you very much. And thanks to all our listeners for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. For more information on the Catholic Medical Association, find us on our website, cathmed.org. That's C A T H M E D dot O R G. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we'll be discussing how to attractively discuss hot-button medical moral topics with your family, your friends, and colleagues through tips from Dr. Pete Colosi, an engaging, high-energy philosophy professor who will tutor us with his charity and clarity method of discussion. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Next week on Dr. Doctor, we'll talk about unpopular healthcare ethics and how clarity and charity can help defend and explain difficult truths. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com doctor and in the Redeemer Radio app.